The following podcast is based on actual X-Files cases. Hey, Rogue. The Lord says thou shalt be merciful and just. I want to talk to you about this list. Did you give any credence to Nietzsche Manley's claims that he was going to come back and take revenge? I know no mercy. Allah says the spirit shall rise again. I just know who's on the list. Who's on the list? Am I on the list, bro? Am I on that list? Is my name on that list? On my words, five men will die. You're number five. Five men will go down. This will be my justice. This will be my law. This will be my capital punishment. And no stay of execution will be granted. For there is no prejudice. No evidence to be admitted. No lawyer to be Perform his job. These men will die. Righteous death. How's it feel beyond death row? Welcome back to X-Files Truth. Today's file is The List. X-File number classified. The plot. Napoleon Nietzsche Manley, a death row inmate at Leon County, Florida prison, is brought to the electric chair. Before he's executed, Nietzsche proclaims that he'll be reincarnated and avenge himself against the five men who tormented him in prison. The Lord says thou shalt be merciful and just. I know no mercy. Allah says the spirit shall rise again and be reborn into this life. The soul shall be recast. Born unto the new Lord's flesh, I will return to avenge all the petty tyranny and the cruelty I have suffered. I will be recast, reincarnated, reunion of spirit and flesh. Mark my words, five men will die. Five men will go down. This will be my justice. This will be my law. This will be my capital punishment. And no stay of execution will be granted. For there is no prejudice, no evidence to be admitted, no lawyer who did not perform his job. These men will die righteous death. Shortly after the execution, Alder and Scully are brought in to investigate when a prison guard is mysteriously found dead in Nietzsche's cell. The agents meet the prison warden, Brodeur, who believes that Nietzsche planned the guard's murder with someone on the outside before the execution. According to our reports, there were threats this might happen. There's always threats of violence in here. Prison's nothing but a police state, basically. Do you give any credence to Nietzsche Manley's claims that he was going to come back and take revenge? Nietzsche Manley. Smart man. Very smart man. In fact, if he'd stayed outside, I would have figured him for a Nobel Prize. But he made a mistake. Paid for it with his life. Now, you take a man of that intelligence, you put him inside for 10 or 11 years, you're going to have to pay for it. What do you mean? Well, there's nothing but bitterness and resentment in here. Seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. It gets home to a real fine point. So you're saying that Manly planned this and is carrying it out with the help of someone else? Collaborative Shakespeare. John Speranza, another inmate, believes that Nietzsche has returned. 
when Scully explores the prison showers, she meets another guard named Vincent Parmelli. He claims that another prisoner, Roke, is keeping a list of the remaining four victims. Later, the head of another guard, Fournier, is found inside a paint can. An examination of the head shows the premature appearance of larvae. The prison coroner tells Scully that the first guard's lungs were completely infested with the larvae belonging to the green bottle fly. Meanwhile, Mulder talks to Roke, who wants a transfer out of the prison in exchange for revealing the remaining three people on the list. How did you come by this list you claim to have? I heard Nietzsche on the bars one night telling Speranza. How many names are on the list? Five. Just like Nietzsche said. So you knew those two guards were going to be murdered? I knew they were on the list, yeah. Who do you think killed them? I don't know. I just know who's on the list. You want to make some kind of deal, huh? That's right. I want to transfer out of this hole. Why? You on the list? I ain't saying nothing. Not until I get my deal. Well, what if they don't give you what you want? Then they're going to see the other three die. Brodor later finds Fournier's headless body in his office. While searching Nietzsche's cell, Mulder discovers evidence of his obsession with reincarnation. Scully, of course, is skeptical. They later talk to Nietzsche's fearful widow, Danielle Manley, who is secretly seeing Parmelli. Roke is brought to the showers, where he is beat to death by Brodor after revealing he is the fifth person on the list. Hey, Roke. I want to talk to you about this list. I ain't seeing nothing. Come on, Roke, you got a big mouth. What are you shutting up now for? Huh? Who's on the list? Am I on the list, Roke? Am I on that list? Is my name on that list? You're number five. How's it feel beyond death row, Warden? Brodor puts the prison under lockdown and tells Mulder that Nietzsche had a violent history with all three victims. Mulder believes that Nietzsche came back for revenge against the guards, but doubts that Roke was on the list. He requests that he be provided with the name of Nietzsche's executioner, who turns out to be a volunteer named Perry Simon. The agents arrive at Simon's home to discover his decomposing body in the attic. Mulder confronts Speranza about the list, but Speranza only tells him that Roke was not on it. He claims to have seen Nietzsche, big as life, outside his cell. Based on the phone records, Scully theorizes that Nietzsche's lawyer, Danny Cherez, may have engineered the murders with Speranza. The agents interview Cherez, who tells them about Danielle's relationship with Parmelli. After they leave, Cherez is suffocated by a resurrected Nietzsche. Brodor visits Speranza in his cell and offers to have his death sentence commuted in exchange for stopping the murders. Speranza takes the offer. 
That night, Parmeli visits Danielle, who has become agitated since Mulder and Scully have begun staking out her house. The agents now suspect Parmeli to be behind the murders and leave to notify Brodeur, who asks that Parmeli be arrested. Warden? Why Roke? They each hated Roke. They pretty near tried to kill each other once. Well, then why the other victims? Each probably hated them, too. Didn't each have a history with the guards who died? Each had a small behavioral problem about a year, year and a half ago. Fournier and the other man had to uh, discipline him. How badly was he beaten? He took his licks. So there's a pattern here, a logic. All these men had a violent history with Nietzsche. They all caused him to suffer physical pain. What are you getting at? A lockdown may not solve your problem, Warden. Sure as hell put a lid on it. If it's a conspiracy among the inmates, but how many inmates could have put that body in your office? How many could have gotten access? You're saying the guards are involved. I'm saying that Roke may not be victim number three. Now, I need a name from you. I need the name of Nietzsche's executioner. It's confidential. How many men know it? Three men, including me. We place an ad, pay him in cash. There's no written record. Well, his life may be in danger. There is no chance. Well, look at it this way, Warden. If I'm right, it'll reduce your list of suspects to four. I said three men knew that name. I'm counting Nietzsche Manley. Soon afterward, Danielle wakes up to see Nietzsche by her bed. She grabs her gun and confronts Parmeli, thinking he is Nietzsche's resurrected form. The agents and a police task force arrive to see her shoot and kill Parmeli. Meanwhile, Brodeur, assuming that Cherez and Parmeli were on the list, thinks Speranza has reneged on their deal and has him taken to the showers. Before Brodeur kills him, Speranza claims that one person remains on the list. Parmeli is blamed for the murders. The agents start to leave Florida, but Mulder soon pulls over. He remains frustrated since Parmeli was on duty during only one murder and was not one of the three men who knew Perry Simon's confidential identity. He also points out inconsistencies in the actions of Parmeli and Roke, who are assumed to be part of the plot. Mulder believes that Parmeli was not responsible for the deaths and that Nietzsche had indeed been reincarnated to enact his revenge. However, Scully convinces Mulder that the case is over and they should return home. Just then, Brodeur passes them in his car. Looking in his rearview mirror, he sees Nietzsche who attacks Brodeur and causes his car to crash into a tree, claiming his last victim. Hand in your field report. And now for my field report for the list. I like the list. It was better than I remembered. That's been the case with a few episodes lately. Uh, they're better than I remember on the rewatch. Uh, this one had a lot of good actors in it. And I like the concept uh, that they had for the plot, even though I don't believe in reincarnation. I'm a Christian, but it still had a good plot. For the sequelizer, not a very high potential for a sequel on this one. Probably low to medium, even though everybody's dead. The concept's still there. We could probably do something with it. On the mythometer, uh, it's definitely uh, Monster of the Week, so uh, no mythology elements in this one that I can remember. And compared to other TV shows, I would give uh, this probably uh, an 8, 8.5 compared to other TV shows. More like a 7 compared to other X-Files episodes. So pending any further evidence, this case, the list, is filed closed.
Now let's head down to the chem lab and see what Agent Chelsea has for us for the chemistry between Mulder and Scully for the list. Agent Chelsea here. This week's episode is The List. Not too many scenes to go over, so this will be quick. Mulder and Scully go visit the prison in which the murder happened. Something I've noticed about these two going to prison is that Scully never really ends up having a good time there. I mean, who would, right? But she goes in there trying to be professional, have a cool head about everything, but something always seems to spook her. At least most of the time beyond the sea anyone? They get in the prison, and of course, Mulder is asking the guard if he believes in any of the stuff Nish said at his execution, and reincarnation and all that. They check out the body first, which Scully finds covered in maggots. This is a bit of foreshadowing because it ends up being played out for the rest of the episode, but I just love how sassy Scully is when she sees it. She's like, you better get this refrigerated before you have nothing left. They chat with another suspect, but Scully wants to go off and see Nisha's cell. The guard takes her, and he goes off for a bit. Scully looks down a hallway and begins to explore. She gets grabbed from behind, and it's one of the other guards telling her who is going to get killed next. She pulls away and looks at him. He tells her that he wants to help her. See? Poor Scully can't ever just have a normal trip to the prison. She walks over to Mulder and tells him that she wants to leave. He turns to look at her and has a worried look and tells her okay. He doesn't ask her until they are by themselves if she is okay. Scully, of course, says she's fine. The next scene I want to talk about is when Mulder and Scully are looking at Nisha's library of books. Mulder finds a book that Nisha had written talking about reincarnation from many different texts and many different religions. This, of course, leads to a banter between Mulder and Scully about the validity of reincarnation. Mulder tries to prove his point by asking Scully if she had the chance to come back and take five people, would she? Scully replies sarcastically, I only get five? Mulder looks at her shocked and responds quickly, I did remember your birthday this year, didn't I, Scully? last scene I'm going to go over is the last one. Mulder and Scully are driving home and he pulls over. Mulder is definitely bothered by how this case ended. He walks off a bit and tells Scully what he finds wrong with it. This is definitely a scene that could have happened in the car, but I think having them get out of the car to have this conversation gives the opportunity to give their body language a chance to speak. That sounds weird, but you can see Scully just really wants to move on. Her arms are crossed, and in a way, she's closed off, while Mulder just wants to talk about it and try to make sense out of it. This also gives Scully a chance to say, let's just go home and walk away, ending the conversation. That's it for me. I'm going to rate this episode 2 out of 5. It's not horrible, but this case just doesn't keep my interest 
I felt like it either needed something else or needed less. It seemed like a very thin episode, if that makes sense. What were your thoughts? Did you like the episode? Let us know at xfilestruth at live.com. Counterintelligence. Inside information. This is Agent Stone with Counterintelligence. With X 3.5, The List. Original air date October 20th, 1995. Written and directed by Chris Carter. A woman gets lonely, sometimes she can't wait around for her man to be reincarnated. Maggots. Maggots, Michael, you're eating maggots. Okay, well that's a line from The Lost Boys, but that's just what this episode has. Maggots. And a prison that caused the episode to go over budget, but which ultimately paid for itself in the end by being able to be used multiple times again in the future, not just by the X-Files, but to other series as well, where its construction lended a hand as being the only prison in Vancouver. The list also represented a departure in terms of the show's design, using green colors and underwater sounds to establish the submarine-like atmosphere that Carter sought in the jail in an attempt to do something different, which gives this episode a unique look compared to other X-File installments. Nietzsche says, I will return to avenge all the petty tyranny and the cruelty I have suffered, and the electric chair switch is thrown. Word is is that Nietzsche is electric, pure energy, and would be reincarnated. Themes we have already similarly dealt with in previous episodes. Also, the prison guard's death is unexplained, as well as those... those maggots. So, there exists a list, hence the title of the episode, of who he's gonna kill. Another body, more maggots, and a medical examiner's explanation that the first victim's lungs were filled with larvae of the green bottle fly, and that he suffocated or drowned. We're left with more bodies, more maggots, and an ending list and a fly. So, where to begin? The name green bottle fly is applied to numerous species of blowfly. These flies are found in most areas of the world, and the most well-known species is the common green bottle. The maggots of this fly are known to preferentially consume dead tissue while leaving live tissue intact, and so have been sold for use in maggot therapy, primarily during the years before the widespread use of antibiotics and medicines and in modern times due to a resurgence of medical literature documenting their effectiveness. These flies are known to lay eggs and cadaver tissue in the wild within hours after death. The developmental stage of their larva and the cadaver can be used to accurately predict the time death occurred. Califoridae, commonly known as blowflies, flies, carrion flies, blue bottles, green bottles, or cluster flies, are a family of insects in the order Diptera with 1,100 known species. The family is known to be polyphyletic, but much remains disputed regarding proper treatment 
of the Constitutant units, some of which are occasionally accorded family status. But the name blowfly comes from an older English term for meat that had eggs laid on it, which was said to be fly-blown. The first known association of the term blow with flies appears in the plays of William Shakespeare, Love Labor's Lost, The Temptest, and Antony and Cleopatra. Reincarnation is the religious or philosophical concept that the soul or spirit after biological death begins a new life in a new body that may be human, animal, or spiritual depending on the moral quality of the previous life's actions. The doctrine is a central tenet of the Indian religions. It is also a common belief of other religions such as Druidism, Spiritism, Theosophy, and Ikankar, and is found in many tribal societies around the world in places such as Siberia, West Africa, North America, and Australia. Although the majority of sects within the Abrahamic religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam do not believe that individuals reincarnate, particular groups within these religions do refer to reincarnation. These groups include the mainstream historical and contemporary followers of Kabbalah, the Cathars, and the Shia sects such as the Alawi Shias and the Druids and the Rosicrucians. The historical relations between these sects and the beliefs about reincarnation that were characteristic of Neoplatonism, Orphanism, Hermeticism, Medicanism, and Gnosticism of the Roman era, as well as the Indian religions, has been the subject of recently scholarly research. In recent decades, many Europeans and North Americans have developed an interest in reincarnation. Contemporary films, books, and popular songs frequently mention reincarnation, and in the last decades, academic researchers have begun to explore reincarnation and publish reports of children's memories of earlier lives in peer-reviewed journals and books. The origins of the notion of reincarnation are obscure. They apparently date to the Iron Age, around 1200 BC. Discussion of the subject appears in the philosophical traditions of India and Greece from about 6th century BC. Also during the Iron Age, the Greek pre-Socratics discussed reincarnation, and the Celtic Druids are also reported to have taught a doctrine of reincarnation. The ideas associated with reincarnation may have arisen independently in different regions, or they might have spread as a result of cultural contact. Proponents of cultural transmission have looked for links between Iron Age, Celtic, Greek, and Vedic philosophy and religion, some even suggesting that belief in reincarnation was present in Proto-Indo-European religion. In ancient European, Iranian, and Indian agricultural cultures, the life cycle of birth, death, and rebirth were recognized as a replica of natural agricultural cycles. The word reincarnation derives from Latin, literally meaning entering the flesh again. The Greek equivalent roughly corresponds to the common English phrase transmigration of the soul and also usually connotes reincarnation after death as either human or animal, though emphasizing the continuity of the soul, not the flesh. The term has been used by modern philosophers such as Kurt Gödel and has entered the English language. Another Greek term sometimes used synonymously is palingenesis, or being born again. There is no word corresponding exactly to the English terms rebirth, meta, psychosis, transmigration, or reincarnation in the traditional language of Pali and Sanskrit. The entire universal process that gives rise to the cycle of death and rebirth, governed by karma, is referred to as samsara, while the state one is born into, the individual process of being born or coming into the world in any way, is referred to simply as birth. Gods may also die and live again. Here the term reincarnation is not strictly applicable, 
inexplicable, yet Hindu gods are said to have reincarnated. Some Christians and Muslims believe that some prophets may reincarnate again. Most Christians, however, believe that Jesus will come again in the second coming at the end of the world, although this is not reincarnation. Some Gulat Shia Muslim sects also regard their founders as in some special sense divine incarnations. Philosophical and religious beliefs regarding the existence or non-existence of an unchanging self have a direct bearing on how reincarnation is viewed within a given tradition. The Buddha lived at a time of great philosophical creativity in India when many conceptions of the nature of life and death were proposed. Some were materialist, holding that there was no existence and that the self is annihilated upon death. Others believed in a form of cyclic existence where a being is born, lives, dies, and then is reborn, but in the context of a type of determinism or fatalism in which karma played no role. Others were eternalists, postulating an eternally existent self or soul comparable to that in Judaic monotheism. The Atman survives death and reincarnates as another living being based on its karmic inheritance. This is the idea that has become dominant with certain modifications in modern Hinduism. The Buddhist concept of reincarnation differs from others in that there is no eternal soul, spirit, or self, but only a stream of consciousness that links life with life. The actual process of change from one life to the next is called Puranbhava, literally becoming again, or more briefly, bhava, becoming, and some English-speaking Buddhists prefer the term rebirth or re-becoming to render this term as they take reincarnation to imply a fixed entity that is reborn. Popular Jain cosmology and Buddhist cosmology, as well as a number of schools of Hinduism, posit rebirth in many worlds and in varied forms. In Buddhist tradition, the process occurs across five or six realms of existence, including the human, any kind of animal, and several types of supernatural being. It is said in Tibetan Buddhism that it is very rare for a person to be reborn in the immediate next life as a human. Reasons for reincarnation can include experiencing the fruit of one's karma, fulfilling a debt, completing unfinished business, to undergo the sufferings of a cursed soul, to satisfy one's desires, and more. Shoutouts for this episode include the similarity of Horace Pinker, the character played by Mitch Pileggi in Wes Craven's Shocker, who, too, promises to return after being sentenced to death by electric chair, as well as the great casting of character actors J.T. Walsh and Ken Forey. So, a prophesized return of one's reincarnated body and or soul after being sentenced to death by electric chair to exact out revenge on a hit list of those responsible? Well... Maybe. So, the final word on the list. Gotta go now. going on out there what's out there for the list well, I've got two a bit longer reviews for you today instead of kind of three short ones 
First one is from a different website that I found called Couch Potato, spelled with a K. And they wrote, So firstly, this episode did win some awards, the biggest one being Director's Guild Award, given to Chris Carter for his supposed achievement here, which I failed to see. I personally don't hate this episode because I see similarities between this and previously written directed episode of Carter, my favorite Dwayne Barry. Clearly I don't because I read that this is what bothered some of the people. This episode is what I would call a pretty standard episode with typical plot that is photographed well, directed fine, written a bit messy, and overall leaves no impact whatsoever. None. It begins in a very creepy way. A person who is being executed announces his own return from the death and to avenge himself by killing all those people that have caused trouble for him. So, you know there are a few people on that list that are going to die one by one with some minor subplots that are going to increase a bit of mystery and suspense so that your attention is a bit diverted from the main plot and will keep you guessing whether it's really the dead man killing or is it just a hoax. Now, what really bothered me was that the script had no depth whatsoever. If this episode was well-written, both the way it was executed and the character development, it would have had some impact. You just see a man who you know nothing about commenting to the deaths of a few people, and then you just see those five or so men die just like that, and you know nothing about them, too. It ends with lack of resolution or clarity. No explanation is given whatsoever. If it was all supposed to have done just for the sake of mystery and horror, then I felt none in the end. Everything just hangs in there. Things happen and you're just supposed to watch it. I was frustrated, bored, and very annoyed at what I was watching. There are a few scary moments that provide some much-needed guilty pleasures and thrills, Good enough cinematography and direction is somewhat there, but none of those things helped even slightest bit overall. Highly unforgettable experience. Now, yes, this review is a little bit harsh, I guess, in a way, but I think it does have some truth to it. Unfortunately, I didn't quite like this episode too much. Um, I thought it definitely could have been written a lot better. Um... And I was really surprised to hear that the that it won a award. I mean, the the directing was great, sure, but I don't know. I feel like maybe some of other maybe some other projects could have been more deserving. I guess I don't know. It just seems odd that they picked this one in particular. Um, but then again, maybe Chris Carter was super focused on trying to make this a winner for a, a director's standpoint, which made him forget about the script or something, but anyway, we're going on to the next review, which was written by AV Club. The X-Files has recurring characters and basic continuity, but non-mythology episodes are closed circuits, much like the Twilight Zone. And like Twilight Zone, the bland ones are bland because they never develop beyond their original idea. The list is a perfect example of this. A prisoner is executed, but swears he'll come back from the dead to avenge himself on five people who wronged him. Mulder and Scully show up and try to stop him. They fail. That's pretty much it. 
Oh, we have some attempts at drama between Warden J.T. Walsh's pissy viciousness, prisoner politics, and Ken Four shacking up with the dead man's wife, but there's no depth to this. The side plots has so little effect on the main narrative as to be basically padding. This isn't exactly new. Every season of the show has this kind of episode, and it's hard to imagine many shows of this type, ones that have come up with single episode plots most of the time, that doesn't have the occasional filler. What makes the list at all interesting is that unlike, say, Shapes or Born Again, it really nails the look of a great episode. Once you get past the set design and cinematography, you end up with some good lines and a few scary moments, and that's it. But because the set design is good as it is, I don't mind the shallowness as much. A spoonful of sugar and all that. I spent so much of the time getting unnerved by the prison setting and sweating in sympathy with what appeared to be rainforest-level humidity that it was almost enough to get me past the lack of interesting writing. Am I being too harsh on the script here? I didn't hate watching the episode, but I do get frustrated when the show turns into a matter of just hitting the predictable marks with our heroes just a few steps behind. As a casual audience member, I can deal with that, because I get other things done while I watch, and because I really do like the show. As a reviewer, it gets annoying, because I actually do need to pay attention, and I get bored. There are nice touches here. The maggots were creepy, and I loved how gory the show gets when it decides to pull out the stops. But the fact that the dead man is able to rise up and kill from beyond the grave just because he's smart and found some religion isn't enough. There's no second act to that. The concept isn't original enough to be distinctive, and it turns into a standard body count with characters I don't care about dying horribly. So, as you see, there's definitely a pattern here. Um, The plot needed more work, but it was still creepy, which is good because that's what our show is all about, right? Um, but I thought something interesting... I thought something was interesting that he mentioned here was that, you know, Mulder and Scully didn't really solve anything. I mean, they were there to try to obviously solve the first murder and try to prevent the rest, but they didn't really get to prevent those murders, which, in a way, kind of sucked. Um, and I don't like it when our heroes are kind of like a few steps behind like that, as he said. But that's how the plot needed to go. So that's what's out there for the list. Character Profiles Profiles in Character This week's profile, Warden Brodeur, as portrayed by J.T. Walsh, from our featured episode, The List. 
Shortly after Nietzsche's execution, agents Mulder and Scully are brought in to investigate when a prison guard is mysteriously found dead in Nietzsche's cell. The agents meet the prison's warden, Brodeur, who believes that Nietzsche planned the guard's murder with someone on the outside before the execution. Mulder questions Roque, who wants a transfer out of the prison in exchange for the three remaining names on Nietzsche's list. The warden, who insists he won't make a deal, enters his office to find Fournier's headless body sitting in his chair. Roque is brought to the showers where he is beaten to death by Brodeur after revealing he is the fifth person on the list. Brodeur puts the prison under lockdown and tells Mulder that Nietzsche had a violent history with all three victims, but Mulder believes that Nietzsche came back for revenge against the guards, but doubts that Roque was on the list. Danielle thinks if anyone could come back, it would be Nietzsche, and at the prison, a guard takes Roque into the showers where Warden Brodeur waits for him, wanting to know who's on the list. You're number five, Roque says defiantly after the warden punches him, to which he replies, How's it feel to be on death row, warden? Later, Roque is found dead in the showers. Mulder confronts Speranza about the list, but Speranza only tells him that Roque was not on it. But, based on phone records, Scully theorizes that Nietzsche's lawyer, Danny Cherez, may have engineered the murders with Speranza, and while the agents visit Cherez, the warden tells Speranza he'll get his case reopened if he'll call off the dogs. Brodeur visits Speranza in his cell and offers to have his death sentence commuted in exchange for stopping the murders. Speranza takes the offer, and that night, Parmalee visits Danielle, who has become agitated since Mulder and Scully have begun staking out her house. The agents now suspect Parmalee to be behind the murders, and leave to notify Brodeur, who asks that Parmalee be arrested. Soon afterward, Danielle wakes up to see Nietzsche by her bed. She grabs her gun and confronts Parmalee, thinking he is Nietzsche's resurrected form. The agents and a police task force arrive to see her shoot and kill Parmalee. Meanwhile, Brodeur, assuming that Cherez and Parmalee were on the list, thinks Speranza has reneged on their deal and has taken him to the showers. Before Brodeur kills him, Speranza claims that one person remains on the list, saying, One man's left to die, as we hear the warden beating him. Near the end of the episode, Mulder believes that Parmalee was not responsible for the deaths and that Nietzsche had indeed been reincarnated to enact his revenge. However, Scully convinces Mulder that the case is over and that they should return home. They slowly and reluctantly drive off as just then Brodeur passes them in his car. Looking in his rearview mirror, he sees Nietzsche, who attacks Brodeur, grabbing his throat and causing his car to crash into a tree claiming his last victim. Warden Brodeur lies dead, a single fly crawling near his mouth. James Thomas Patrick, or J.T. Walsh, was born September 28, 1943, and died February 27, 1998. He is best remembered as a great character actor, and he appeared in many well-known films including Nixon, Hoffa, A Few Good Men, Backdraft, Misery, Miracle on 34th Street, Outbreak, Breakdown, The Negotiator, Pleasantville, and Good Morning Vietnam. Walsh was known for his roles as, quote, 
quietly sinister white-collar sleazeballs, a quote from Leonard Malton, and was described by Playboy magazine as everybody's favorite scumbag. Have you checked your email? I found these in my email this morning. And now, the female with the emails, Agent Chelsea. We got some great feedback for this podcast. First, we have an email from a new listener. Hello, agents. I guess this is mostly addressed to Agent Shadow. The music with the X-Files DNA is awesome, and it makes the whole podcast that much more of a fun ride. The WXFT music episodes are in regular rotation of stuff I listen to, and they have helped me get through many time-intensive work projects. Anyone who pairs X-Files DNA with Duran Duran is after my own heart. I'm probably showing my age a bit, but I'm also a longtime fan of the band. On the Shapes podcast, although Hungry Like the Wolf has never been my top Duran Duran favorite, Listening to the WXFT version makes me smile every time. You said listeners can send in song suggestions, so here are some of mine. Some other Duran Duran music picks I have for future podcasts are Love Voodoo, Astronaut, One of Those Days, Red Carpet Massacre, The Valley, and Too Much Information. That's all I have for now. Anything I send you guys is fair game for the podcast if you want to read it. The truth is still out there. Agent Angela. Thank you, Agent Angela, for emailing us and sending your song suggestions. I know Shadow replied to you personally, but I thought I'd read it on the air as a reminder that you guys can send in stuff like this. Absolutely. We love hearing from you on your suggestions of things you'd like to hear played on here and whatnot. We truly appreciate it. And the next email we have is from one of our favorite listeners, Lil. Hello, X-Files Truth Gang. Enjoyed your take on Clyde Bruckman. Can't believe Shadow gave the episode lower ratings. It's a classic episode. Tend to agree with Chelsea on all the outstanding Mulder and Scully moments. Love Stone's promo, too. He's so funny. Actually, I did have another reason for writing. Having listened to three years of the show, I was wondering what each of the agents' take is on the paranormal. Specifically, do they consider themselves skeptics like Scully or believers like Mulder? Thanks again for all you do, Lil. Thank you, Lil. And thank you for proposing such an interesting question. Um, now, I can't answer for the other agents, but I'm going to give my answer and I think I will ask the other agents to maybe send in their answer, and I can read it for you, maybe on the next podcast. Now, I would say before watching The X-Files, I was absolutely a skeptic like Scully. Um, I was really into science as a kid, and I really kind of just, I don't know, thought everything in a very scientific way, and didn't believe in a lot of things, um, but after watching the show and kind of getting into sci-fi more throughout my high school era, um, 
I really started to open up my mind to a lot of the possibilities. And that doesn't mean I believe in quite everything, but I do kind of have a more open mind when it comes to stuff. So that is my answer. And hopefully you can hear the answers about the other agents soon. I will have them get back to you. Now, if you guys want to send us an email like this, feel free. It's xfilestruth at live.com. And send us your thoughts on the episode, the podcast as a whole, or even just on the X-File itself. We also have our Facebook page, which if you search X-File's Truth Podcast, you can like our page and check out all of our updates. You can also send us an iTunes review. We actually have a new one for you today to read. It's from The Chronicler. And they wrote, For anyone starting with this podcast, the promo is highly recommended. Agent Chelsea's story especially takes me straight to how thrilled I was when I first discovered the X-Files years ago. I totally relate to getting chills at the opening theme and then becoming obsessed with this show that's still amazing. By the way, Agent Chelsea's delivery is nowhere near awful, as one reviewer claimed a while back. It's genuine and adds so much with the shipper moments. Thank you for the kind words. Um, And I'm glad someone else kind of had their start in the same way. It's such an easy show to get obsessed with, and it's absolutely still amazing today. All right, and we also have a comment from our website, which is xfilestruth.com, if you guys want to check that out and write your comments as well. This is from Fresh3444, and they wrote, This is great. I was a little bit too young to start watching X-Files in its day, six years old, around 1994 when it began. So I got all the seasons, already on season two now, and love the mythology. Wow, I kind of take it from this comment that you are just starting to watch it now, or you're just on season two now. Um, So I hope you're still watching it, and please let us know or email us if you are watching it right now and you're just kind of going along with the podcast. That'd be great, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on the show so far. All right, that's about it for this month. I hope you guys all can write in next month and let us know how you like it. Hope to hear from you soon. Next time on X-Files Truth, a series of dead bodies coated with a gelatinous fluid leads Mulder and Scully in search of an internet chat room, Casanova, who preys on lonely and insecure, overweight women. They can drag me to the gates of hell
you all enjoyed the list. Before we leave, I wanted to mention a couple things. Agent Summer and Agent M both emailed me about uh, Mark Snow's second volume of X-Files music coming out. You can find that at BigLight.com and some other sources too, but that one is um, Frank Spotnitz's website. So that's really good news. If you're a fan of Mark Snow's music, you can also subscribe to Snow Tracks. That's the other podcast I put out. Just launch iTunes and search for Snow Tracks at the iTunes store. Or you can just go to the website, xfilestruth.com, and I have a link at the top of the page to Snow Tracks. And secondly, I wanted to thank Barry Murphy from Ireland. He's our most frequent emailer. We don't put all of his emails on, but this one was a really good suggestion that he had asking X-Files fans to record a clip of themselves saying why they like the X-Files and I could make some kind of a short little special or just put something special together with all the fans talking about why they like the X-Files. So anybody that wants to do that, you can use a program like Audacity or whatever you want and then send us the audio file at xfilestruth at live.com and I'll put it all together if you guys want to do that. Once we get a few of those together, we'll do something like that. So send anything you like X-Files related and I'll put that together. And thanks again, everybody, for listening, your emails, especially your reviews on iTunes and everything else. We really appreciate it. So we'll see you guys next week for Too Shy. Puppies. I made this. 20th century. Fox.